All right, well, let's get going. We're going to get into the book of Esther again. We started this last week. Again, if you ever miss a service, and especially the way we do things, it's good to go back and listen to it. We can make CDs for you if if that's something you need, Um, but otherwise, it's online. If you get it set up with iTunes, it'll automatically download to your phone every time a new one uh, comes on or an iPad or something like that, and we can certainly help you do that if need be. But I want to recap a little bit, because the book of Esther is very unique. It's basically outlined in four different things, and I think I've got this up here. Do I got that up there, Mr. Evan? Kind of an outline? There we go. And this is where we left off, the rise of Esther and Mordecai. And this is the first two chapters. That's what we talked about last week. But here this week, we're going to get into these two, where the Jews are threatened and the plot is beginning to be reversed. You're going to actually see it finish next week. We'll finish up the book of Esther next week. Then we'll dive headfirst into Nehemiah, which will take a couple of weeks. And that will be the end of this series. But I have one sermon left at the very end that I'm going to do where we're going to kind of tie everything together. Um, so I hadn't planned on doing it. Something the Lord put in my heart a couple of weeks ago, but I think it'll be good. But the bottom line here is, is Esther is it's an extremely unique book. The most unique part of it is God is never mentioned. Now, the whole Bible's about God, obviously we know that, but he's never mentioned. I mean, you just don't see it. There are people that argue whether Esther ever belonged in the Bible. Now, this book is read in college campuses, Ruth and Esther both, which is unique because they're the only two books named after women. But they're read because of incredible literature, if, if for nothing else, if you take it from that. And it's got this moral story that they just eat up, and it's the, the power of love is what they say. What they're missing is the power of the hand of God upon. But what happened is this is at the time of the exile. King Xerxes, is Ahasuerus, if I'm saying that correctly, is in power. Okay, They've been there for a while, and essentially the king threw a big, lavish party. If you remember, it lasted 180 days, which is six months. Okay, That's a heck of a party. They're, they had a good old time. And there was no shortage of wine. I don't know how many grapes they grow out there, but apparently it's a lot. So he has this six-month party, at this end, and it was for all the, the noblemen of the province and the area, the higher-ups, the elite class, if you will. But then he decided, hey, we need to throw a party for the average folk, which would put all of us in there. And that one was seven days. So at the end of a six-month binge, he decided to have a seven-day bender, basically. And so at this party, he's, you know, it's kind of at the end of the seventh day. The queen goes off and she sets up her own party. She's having one just for the women. Now, it was kind of a twofold thing that was going on. One is that a woman would never drink in front of a man, at least in that manner. Perhaps at their mealtimes, that would be a little different. But especially the queen, because the queen was elegant. And she had to maintain that elegance. And so she threw a party for the women, the same time frame, all of that. The seventh day, it says, when the king was merry at heart with wine, which is just a really nice way of saying he was hammered, drunk, right? He pretty much lived his life perpetually that way. He called for the queen to come and wanted to put on her her headdress or a crown and wanted her to come. He wanted to parade her because her name literally means beautiful. I mean, she she was an attractive woman. And so he wants to parade her in front. Now, I told you what kind of the Jewish mindset is here and what they believe is going on um, is that it wasn't just parade her in front. He wanted her to run around naked, right? Okay? Now, Scripture doesn't say that necessarily, and that doesn't mean it didn't happen. But as I said last week, I'm pretty sure most of you would say no, because she refused, right? She's like, I don't think so. And remember, there's one thing you don't do. Well, there's two things. One is you don't enter into the king's presence without being summoned. And two, once you were summoned, you don't say no. Both things are punishable by death. Both are going to come into play this week. She said no. The other theory on that is, is that now they would parade their concubines, which is a lower class of wife, 
around and, and stuff like that. But she was the queen, and so she carried a different thing. She was a different type of wife, and she, this was beneath her. Either one is, is certainly plausible, but given the fact of six months and a week of drunkenness, I imagine it was the first rather than the latter. So it throws this party, and because of this, she refuses to go. They, some of their noblemen and these people that were well-versed in the law come together and say, she's got to go. Because now she's laid out an example, a precedence to all the women in the nation that they can just ignore what their husbands say and what we noblemen tell them to do. And so they got to get rid of her as queen. And so they wanted him to create a law, which he does. She's out. They go into this incredible competition. It takes over a year to do it. And they bring in all these women. And essentially they would go through a six-month part of a beautification and another six months of just preparation to go see the king. And they would have one night. They'd go there, they would take something to entertain the king with, and none of them ever got sent home. He took them all as concubines. If you remember, I told you that he had more concubines than Solomon did, and Solomon was nuts. He had way too many, 300 concubines, 700 wives, okay? That man is, I'd say he's better than me, but he is certainly not smarter than me. Anyway. So Esther ends up winning this competition, and there was this thing that went on. It said it time and time again that she found favor in the eyes of this person, that person. I mean, even then, she was given more uh, beauty regiments than she was allotted. She had servants that were serving her, and she was moved to a better place and treated better because even in that situation, she found favor. And sure enough, she finds favor with the king, and guess what? She is the new queen. Now, here's the thing. This queen is a Jewish woman. She is not qualified of the king. Remember, that, that she, the rules were, the laws were, which are set up by Darius, who was Xerxes' father, is that you had to marry, a, to take a queen, one, somebody from one of seven families. That was the law. Now, they didn't often follow all the laws, and they certainly did in this case. But the bottom line, if it wasn't one of those seven, it certainly was not a Jewish woman. But Mordecai, who was her cousin, who basically became her father because her parents were killed, took her, he raised her up and all of that, she told her, said, do not tell anybody you're Jewish. Keep it quiet. And so she does. So the king has no idea. And so at this point, after she becomes queen, we believe that Mordecai is pro promoted to some sort of a position in the kingdom. He's essentially her father because he was in the king's gate. And that is a place of power. It's not just what's going on or just because. It's not just uh, perhaps a, a, an area where you would uh, spend money and things like that. I mean, this is a position of power. He had to get there somehow. Never tells us for sure, but we assume that. So between chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, which is kind of where we left off, at, at the end of that, they, they unfoiled a plot. Mordecai finds out that somebody, the two doorkeepers were getting ready to uh, try to kill the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. They check it out. Sure enough, the two men are killed. They're hung on the gallows, which is basically a wooden instrument that they pierced them from. Very common in the Persian Empire. But between that, from the time that she marries the, the king, and the beginning of chapter 3, we have a five-year gap. So this, there's an amount of time that has taken place. And I just want to understand that. So we're all on the same page of what happened last week. Now we're going to pick it up here about five years later. So we're going to start in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. After these things, what things are they talking about? The stuff that had just the unfoiled of the plot and all of that is going on. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, he would not bow or pay him homage. 
Then the king's servant who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now that kingdom is massive, guys, and there are a lot of Jews because they had been exiled in. Remember, they estimate about 3 million had been exiled. About 50,000 went home. That's how many are left. They're about. And how long is this after they made the uh, I think we're about 40 years from the original. Okay. 40 years from the original time. So they're about in that time frame. And so, but look what happened. It says, after these things, referring to that plot being unfoiled, it says that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now here's the thing. When you unfoil a plot on the king, you're typically given status, you're giving lavish gifts and all of that. He did not promote Mordecai, he promoted Haman. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why Mordecai was ignored. But what we do believe is that the hand of God is upon this for things that you're going to see later. Because Mordecai is going to be richly rewarded. But we're introduced to this man, and his name is Haman. And he is an Agagite. Agagai, however you want to say it. Now, Haman is promoted to essentially what is called the prime minister. And the king makes the command is that the, everybody here is going to pay homage, and they're going to bow down to him when they see him. This was common. But Mordecai refused. He refused to do this. Now, a lot of commentators, a lot of people seem to think that they refused simply because he uh, was a Jew and they don't bow to anybody. Kind of they think back to Daniel. Man, would somebody control their kid? I'm just kidding. That's my kid. I'm just teasing. Um, but, but they think back to Nebuchadnezzar in the time of Daniel, and they say that's why Mordecai didn't bow, because they wouldn't bow to the, the king's idol. But that's not what's going on here. Because it wasn't like they were set out to strictly worship him. They were pay homage. You bow before a superior. That would happen if somebody walked into the room. They would fall on their knees. Sometimes they would kiss their feet, things like that, kiss their ring. You're going to see later that Esther is going to grab the scepter with both hands. and read. It's, again, it's paying homage. So that was normal. So Mordecai's refusal can't have anything to do with his Jewish uh, lineage in the sense that it's a type of worship. But there is something that is going on behind the, sea, the scenes of here. Because Mordecai lets the cat out of the bag. He's a Jew. He tells these guys, who of course tell Haman. Now Haman saw that he didn't bow. And he was ticked off. He's pretty mad. And under typical circumstances, he just kills the guy. But he decides to wait. He does nothing to him at this point because he's told that Mordecai's a Jew. And he is going to take it out on all the Jews. Which seems excessive, Right? I mean, if you've got one, per everybody else is doing this except this one guy. Take care of one guy, but he's got a hatred for all the other Jews that are out there. You can understand the hatred for Mordecai, but why everybody else? There's a story behind the story here. And I know Janet knows it because she mouths the word. She's always two steps in front of me. I love it. So remember last week when we talked at Mordecai, we looked at the lineage that he came from. He came from one of the guys that was in his lineage, was a guy named Shimei, Shimei, however you say it, and they were Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. And remember, I told you that Shimei was the guy that David ended up sparing twice. First of all, as they were fleeing Absalom, fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei shows up, starts throwing rocks and cursing David and all of that. His servant wanted to kill the guy. David said, no, this is pretty much deserved because David had done wrong. There was no doubt about it. And so he tells him, you know, like, nope, we're going to let him live. 
after Absalom is dead and they're on their way back, the first one that meets them once they cross the river, shimmy again. I'm so sorry, king. I, I, please don't, please forgive me, all of that. Again, the servant wants to kill him. David doesn't allow it. He allows him to live. If Shimei does not live, Mordecai is not here. You see how that works? And there's essential to that because look who adopted Esther. Look how all of this is taking place. So you can kind of see a providence going on here. But we've got to take it a step farther because it says that we've got Haman here, and he's got a severe hatred for the Jews, and we don't know why. But it says that he is an Agagite, which doesn't mean a lot on the surface until you dig deeper. Because in Deuteronomy 25, Verse 17, this is going to be the backstory of what we're about to see. Remember what Amalek, this is God talking, did you on, his, on the way as you were coming out of here, excuse me, this is Moses talking, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now he's telling this story, Moses is telling this story, Deuteronomy is like his last sermon before he dies. He's like, here's everything you've got to remember. In the book of Exodus, as they're fleeing Egypt, the Amalekites come up behind him. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened. This gives us more detail. But they come from behind, they attack him. The guys were tired. They've been wandering through the wilderness. They were fleeing Egypt, all of this stuff. And they kill him, but they did not fear God. And so God made a promise, and it says that in Exodus, I'm going to wipe these guys out. And so that's the promise. Because what happened with the Amalekites will not go unpunished. He attached the Israelites. In 1 Samuel 15, you're going to see this punishment begin to take place. Okay? 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus said the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, donkey, essentially wipe them out. Amalek was the guy that the Amalekites come from, right? That's pretty common sense. But, but God is going to use Saul to bring the judgment against the Amalekites that they had promised clear back at the time of Moses. We're hundreds of years in the forward here. I mean, you think God forgot this? Absolutely not. He had made this promise. This is the time where Saul is becoming a king, and he is a man of Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. And so you've got all of these things going forth here. Now, this is something that God had laid out before they were ever in the promised land. I mean, this is how far in advance, you know, we're talking here. And so here we see this coming in place. In verse 6, we see something that Saul does. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. These were the good guys. They'd been there with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul destroys the Amalekites. He destroys all the worthless stuff. He, they take the goodies, okay? And they take Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, because of this event, God is eventually going to remove Saul from power, and Samuel will be the guy to eventually kill Agag. 
but that was Saul's job. He was supposed to kill everyone and destroy everything, and he did it. And because of that, judgment comes. Now think about that. Haman was the Agagite, Agag, from the Amalekites. You guys making the connection? Had Saul done his job, there is no Haman. You guys see that? If David hadn't spared Shimei, there's no Mordecai. If Saul had been obedient and, and didn't let Agag live, there's no Haman. So think about what's going on here. You kind of have a reversal of the story. God was using the, the Israelites to destroy the enemies of God. But here, Haman could have taken Mordecai out, but he doesn't. He waits because he wants to wipe all of them all. With Saul, a Jew wipes out all the Amalekites. Here, Haman, who is an Amalekite, is going to attempt to wipe out all the Jews. You have this reversal going on. But think about that. The obedience of Saul, or lack thereof, is the reason we are reading about this event taking place. How important is it to be obedient to God? Very. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years, guys. Hundreds of years. So why does he hate all the Jews? It's a family thing. They were the enemies of the Israelites. You guys see how that all interconnects and intertwines? Okay. Let's jump back to Esther chapter 3 and verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day of the month and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other people's, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So, let's backtrack a little bit. We're in the 12th year of the king, which is about 474 B.C., basically where all of this is. Nisan is the first month in the Hebrew calendar. First month, very first month. It would be our January, how we think of it, but it's actually somewhere between March and April, just how things fall. And it says that they're casting pur, or they're casting lots. Pur is just the Babylonian name for lots. And they determine the date of the destruction of the Jewish people. So this is planned out. They just got to pick the day they do it. It lands on the last month of Adar, which would be that February to March range. So we're talking about the day that he goes to the king is in Nisan, which is the first month. It's going to happen a year later. There's a one-year reprieval here. And so I love how he says it because he approaches the king, and what he says is that there's a certain people. He does not name them. Now, we don't know if the king at this point knows that Esther is Jewish or not. Doesn't tell us. Probably not. Later, it seems that he does know, but we don't know right now. But he doesn't name them. He just said, look, they follow their own laws. They aren't obedient to the king's law and things like that. He said, we need to wipe these out. We should destroy them. The thing is, is that it wasn't uncommon of the Persians to allow other people to kind of follow their own laws and their customs and things like that. So the Jews would have been no big deal. But as long as that didn't interfere with the peace of the empire. If it did, then that was a different story. But these guys weren't doing any of that. They weren't causing upheaval. They'd allowed some of them to go back and more in the future here. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, they've been a peaceful people. But yet, Haman convinced him. He says, a certain people. He doesn't give them all the details. And so the king takes off his signet ring and hands it to Haman. He tells him to go for it. 
Now, you've got to understand what this ring was. This was the king's authority because he said, I want you to make a decree. I want it written down. Why? Under the Persian law, if it was written down by the king, the king himself could not overturn the law. It was that thing. That, sing, that, that, that ring would seal it. It would seal it in wax or clay. They would have these, uh, a lot of times, cylinders that they would use. They were made of clay. And that ring on there was the authority, all that they needed. He basically wrote Haman a blank check. Hey, buddy, do whatever you got to do with that ring. That's essentially what's going on. And so he says, hey, we're going to do this. It says that we'll give 10,000, how did it say that, of silver? 10,000, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's like 340 tons. That's a lot of money. I don't know what that works out to today's Right, but they'd be doing all right. Let's look at verse 12. Then a king's scribe were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman had commanded, to the king's satraps, the governors uh, who were over every province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to his script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And to the plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed by Shushan the citadel, in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now, he gets the blessing of the king. It was on the twelfth day. He jumps on it immediately because it says it's the next day, the thirteenth day of Nisan. Here's what's interesting. Do you know what the fourteenth day of Nisan is? Passover. So it's one day before Passover. I don't know if I'm looking too deep into that. The Passover is the idea of the redemption of the people. Maybe I'm thinking it too too deep here, but. Anyway, this is going to be carried out one year later on the 13th of Adar. So they basically have 11 months if you want to get technical. But basically, they are going to be annihilated, all the Jews, in one year. And it says it was in Shushan, the citadel, which is where the king was. And the whole city is absolutely perplexed by this decree. Because the Jews hadn't caused any trouble. It doesn't make any sense. So they're trying to figure this out. But what does the king and Haman do? They sit down and have a drink, right? Hey, we made a decree today. We worked hard. Let's, let's, let's party. They've, they've earned it, right? All right, let's jump into chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and that the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had pointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. 
So the first thing that Mordecai does is the first thing that any good Jew does. They immediately go into mourning. They tear their clothes. They take on this sackcloth and ashes. It was kind of like burlap type of thing. It was not a nice cloth and they would rub ashes on. It was a sign of mourning. And it says that all the Jews were mourning. But this was personal to Mordecai because he knew why this was happening. You think about that. What if he had just simply bowed and paid homage? What would that have done? It's a feud with Haman and him that has brought this on. And so he probably takes this extremely personal. But once again, the Jews are facing extinction. This wasn't the first time. It isn't the last time. It's still going on for that matter. So he goes to the front of the gate, but he does not enter. Because to enter into the gate, you had to have a countenance that was to be cheerful. And you're going to see that in Nehemiah in the first couple of chapters there. Uh, that same kind of thing come into play. But the bottom line is, is you do not enter in sackcloth and ashes. You enter with the proper attire. It'd be as if we were meeting the president today, right? Don't wear your jeans full of holes and things like that. Dress kind of nice, like me. Okay. But Esther's servants tell her what's going on. Something is up. Mordecai's out front. She does not know what is going on. But she knows that he's in sackcloth and ashes. So she sends him clothes so that he can change, so that he can come in. And he refuses. He's not going to do that. And so... She sends out her servant to Mordecai, and he tells him everything that's going on. Sends a copy of the decree with him to give to her because he wants him to go to the king, or wants her to go to the king. But Hathak didn't know she was Jewish before. If he didn't know before, he certainly does now because the cast's coming out of the back. And so he wants her to go before the king. Now remember what I said: you do not go to the king unless you are summoned, and if you are summoned, you do not refuse. We saw what happened to Queen Vashti. Let's jump into verse ten. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's word. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps you've heard that saying before. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So he wants Esther to go to the king. And there is that problem. She has not been summoned. She says they haven't been summoned for 30 days. If the king doesn't call for you, you die. You just walk in there. But there is a little thing there. This just says, you know, if the king holds out his cup, then you can come forth. Now, Mordecai is getting on to her a little bit and scolding her. He said, you need to go anyway. Because just because you're the queen doesn't mean this isn't going to happen to you. The law is written and it cannot be changed. And it says all the people. It didn't say all the people, but the queen. But Mordecai makes an interesting statement that oftentimes gets overlooked. It says, if she doesn't go, Relief and deliverance will arise from another place. You just might die and your family lineage may end. But he's totally believing that God is going to take care of it. He's going to keep a remnant in place. Why? He's always done that, whether they deserved it or not. And most of the time, not. He's always kept a remnant in place. So, 
He may die, she may die, but God will spare them. It's the promise of God. This is part of the covenant that they are going to go forth. And that is something, again, for that we need to just grab a hold of. Their covenant is not the same as our covenant. Our covenant is built on better promises. And so if they can believe God in the face of these circumstances, why are we so weak? Why do we not believe what God says? That's a side note. I don't want to get off on that. But it's true. You need to listen. Okay. So Esther's going to agree to go because it is a promise of God. She knows it. She's going to take care of it. I'm going to go. She says, I want you to fast three days and three nights. We're going to do the exact same thing. She's setting aside time to get right with God. All right, God, how do you want me to do this? And look at the difference between her and Vashti. Vashti was summoned and refused. Esther went in without being summoned, and both are punishable by death. But she made a statement. She's like, you know what? I'm going. And if I die, I die. I don't care. I'm going to do the work of the Lord. Let's jump to chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the queen said, Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Interesting, right? You could kind of say she knows the way to the man's heart. Good party. So at the end of the fast, she dresses appropriate for seeing the king, but she said she's in the the court. She's not in the thing. She's kind of wandering around. She waits to get the attention of the king. And what does he do? He holds out her se- his scepter, which means, okay, you're cleared. You may come in. So she sets this whole thing up. She has favor with the king, says it again. She found favor with the king. She goes in and she gets down on her knees, presumably, and touches the top of that scepter. Again, that scepter has a meaning there. It's an authoritative thing, but she is paying homage to the king. Now, the king wouldn't have been alone. His cupbearer would have been there, as well as several other guards and servants and things like that. If you've ever seen the picture with the king, like being fed grapes with the fans and stuff, picture that. That's likely what's going on. But he sees her standing, and she finds favor. That's kind of the whole theme, finds favor in his sight. That's spoken so many times. And so brings her in. Now, the king immediately looks at her, and he wants to know what her request is. Now, you and I are sitting here thinking, hey, here's the I said, up to half the kingdom, whatever you want. Hey, let my people go. That's my request. That's not what she says. She says, hey, I'm going to throw, I'm throwing a party, and I want you and Haman to come. And because she, why? She knows these boys like a good party. They're all about the party. She's setting things up, and it is absolutely brilliant what is going on. But she has already prepared the party. She's not like, I'm going to, it is prepared, the party that I've prepared for you. Now, how could he turn her down, even if he didn't want to, which he surely did, but he's not going to turn her down. And so they get to the party, Haman's there, the king is there, life is going good, all the wine. It's called the, 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 uh, the banquet of wine, right? So I imagine the key component to this banquet would be wine. I'm not sure how it says that in Hebrew, but that's my deduction from it. And so, he, again, he tells her, you can have up to half the kingdom. Now, you would think at this point she's going to make her request 
to save her people, but she doesn't. She instead invites them to a party the next day. She could have asked. She chose not to. Now, Xerxes has made these promises before. Herodotus talks about a time where uh, his wife had made him this brightly colored shawl, and he absolutely loved this thing, uh, probably more than her for that matter. But he would wear it when he went to go uh, visit a gal that wasn't his wife, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. The ironic thing is this woman was the daughter of his brother and happened to be married to his son. And so he loved her, and he makes the same proposition, up to half the kingdom. And what does she request? That shawl that was made by his wife. And he has no choice but to give it to her because he said that. Needless to say, the wife was not happy about this, and uh, people die over this situation. But again, this is not uncommon territory for, for Xerxes. Now, Esther is being completely strategic here. Because she's going to bring them together the next day. And the next day is where she's going to make her request. But watch what happens with Haman here. Verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart. We can assume that means tipsy. And when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and called for his friends and his wife uh, Zeresh. And then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come into, with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her, along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let it gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, and so he had the gallows made. Now think about this. Haman's feeling pretty good. He's on his way home. He sees Mordecai in the gate, where Mordecai had been. He's no longer fasting because he's in the gate. We know that. Okay? So he does not stand. He does not tremble. And this infuriates him. Haman. Now think about this. He had just got a decree issued that all the people, all the Jewish people are going to be killed. And even in that, he still will not tremble before Haman. He's, it's kind of a slap in the face to him. Mordecai's a pretty confident guy. Now Haman holds off wanting to do, doing what he wants to do, but, but he's, he knows this day of reckoning is coming. It's the end of the year. So he gets home. He calls for his friends and his wife. And what does he do? He starts bragging. Look at all these great things. He tells him of his great riches. You know, he said that I will fund that, that 340 tons of silver. So he was a rich man. But he talks about all his children. Which in, in the Persian world, the greatest sign of manliness was how many kids you had. So that was kind of what he was doing. He talks about his promotion and how he's a high official. And on top of all this other great stuff about my life, because everything's going good the queen invited me to the banquet. It was just me and the king. We were just hanging out. She was mammy. She made me. She brought bagel bites in and pizza rolls. I mean, it was good. And then he says, and guess what? Tomorrow I'm going again. He's completely bragging. It kind of sounds a little bit like our current president. I don't know about you, but that, that you know, a little arrogant, but whatever. But as he's telling this, he kind of changes the tune of the story. He says, this is good and all. But that is all for nothing, because every time I see Mordecai, he just in fear. He wants the man dead. He refuses to do anything. He hates him. And so his wife makes a suggestion. He says, hey, make a gallows 50 cubits high. To put that in perspective, 50 cubits is about 75 feet. 
Now, this is not a gallow in which you just hang somebody. This is a pole in which they would uh, put somebody on, pierce them. Again, this is a Persian thing. And then raise it in the air. 75 feet, that's seven and a half stories, right? We don't have a building in this town that high. I mean, it is up there. This thing is overkill. His wife suggests that. But he's like, hmm, I kind of like that idea. So what she tells him to do is have it built. And then put him, put Mordecai on it, get him hanged on it, then go to the party. And Haman loves the idea. So he has it built. Now the thing is, and this is what's interesting, and this is what's going underneath the text here a little bit. How did Jesus die? Crucifixion. Who invented crucifixion? It's the Persians. Where do you think it got started? This. Because, again, they wanted the most painful way to torture possible. The Persians invented crucifixion. They passed it on to the Greeks. And later, it was adopted by the Romans for extreme crimes. But, again, you see this all kind of undergirding. This is all leading up to something doing with Jesus. The gallows had to be made because God needed them. And he's gone on this cross that he's going to die. I mean, this is powerful. Now, when you look at this, look at all of this stuff that's going on. It doesn't mention God, but you see his hands going. This does not happen based on human means. The favor that Esther finds, she's a Jew. Have the Jews ever found favor in this world? No, not without the hand of God. It's the only way. The reason they're a nation today is the hand of God was upon them after such atrocities of what happened in World War II. But the bottom line here is we see something undergirding. Now remember, all of this is leading up to Christ. It's all bringing us to that. Just keep that in the back of your mind as we go forward. Because next week, we're going to watch how this whole thing flips on his head. And there's only one way that happens. There's no way that it's not the hand of God.